Good morning and welcome. My name is Jesse. Pleased to be with you here this morning. Uh, things change as you get older. I'm sure no matter what stage of life you are in, uh, you understand that things change as you get older. Uh, for me, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, man, I loved going on roller coaster rides. And I, I went, if I would go to an amusement park, I would go on any roller coaster ride I could find. Now as I get a little bit older, sometimes I catch myself getting dizzy as I bank going around walking uh, just on the normal ground. You know, your inner ears kind of give out to you, give out as you get older, but I loved going on roller coaster rides. And my favorite one was the one right here uh, at Darien Lake, the Superman Ride of Steel. Has anyone been uh, to the Ride of Steel? Yeah, a bunch of you. So I've been to a bunch of different amusement parks, uh, and, and the Superman one is my absolute favorite. And the reason that I say that is because it kind of has three of those really big drops, right? Kind of the first one, really big one, then there's a middle one, and then a smaller one. And the way that I describe it often is that middle one, the, the second one you go over, that's kind of like the drop that you experience at most other uh, roller coaster rides. But man, that first one is unbelievable. You, you, you just keep on going up and up and up, and you, as you go over the top, and then you start to go down, you get that feeling of you know, your stomach is kind of coming up into your rib cage, into your throat, and, and you kind of just keep on going down. And like most of the time on roller coaster rides, there's this, you know, it's just kind of, uh, and then you kind of go around the bend, but with the Superman one, you just feel like you're just not going to stop. It just keeps on going and going and going. And then you, you go over the next one and the next one. You kind of loop around at the end. And as I think back to, uh, you know, when I could go on these roller coaster rides, that, that's the way that I really remember it. Just these unbelievable thrills, the feeling that you got as you rode this ride. That's not exactly the reality of the experience, though, right? I mean, if you've been on any roller coaster rides, there's more to it uh, than just the really exciting part. There's the line, right? And, we, and we're in western New York. We're not in the most magical place on earth where, you know, when you're, when you're in Disney World, there's like themes and music and you're taking in all the scenery and they're looping you around through different places. There's a lot of engagement when you go to uh, maybe Disney World or other places. But at Darien Lake, it's like, well, you're going to walk a mile that way. Uh, then you're going to turn around. You're going to walk a mile back. You know, the whole time is kind of uncomfortable. You're like 18 inches away from hundreds of people you don't know trying not to make eye contact. You probably have like 97 minutes of this to go through. And as you're going through, there's kind of this vague self-awareness. At least when I was there, like it was kind of around that time where there was that accident at one of the Darien Lake parks. And there was a kid who got his kappa detated from the rest of his body. And so you're thinking about, was this the ride that that happened on? And am I in any, in any real danger? And then you come up to the front of the line, right? And there's these highly trained, hyper-focused people there that are here to really ensure your safety as you go on this journey. And you sit down in the ride, and they have those cattle locks that come over your over your uh, lap here, and they come through and give you one of those Heimlich maneuvers to make sure that it's really locked into place. And then as you go out, you know, you kind of get the joy of that panic attack when you realize, like, okay. This thing is a whole lot bigger than you really imagined it would be. And you're thinking, okay, is there a way out? How come there's no stairs? What am I going to do? Your life is flashing in front of your eyes. The reality of the entire experience, we tend to gloss over some of those other parts. And and in reality, there's a phenomenon uh, that reflects the way that we remember things. And it's described, um, oh man, it's described by, um, shoot, Daniel Kahneman. And the theory is called the peak 
end theory. And I need my slideshow to be working here. Sorry, I might have messed that up with this coming out. It's called the peak end theory, and it's the way that we kind of organize our memories around two specific parts. And the first is the peak of the experience, the most positive or most memorable part of it, and the second is its end. In 1993, Daniel Kahneman kind of put to words what this was like, and it's the way that we kind of remember things. We kind of gloss over some of the intermediary uh, details, and we remember these kind of two points. You know, good businesses utilize this all the time. So when you think about it, when you go to the doctor or a dentist as a child, what, what do they do on your way out the door? They give you a lollipop or a sticker, right? They, they, they want you to remember the last most pleasant part. And as I think about this uh, kind of theory and the way that we remember things, I think the writer of Hebrews uh, kind of implemented this uh, as he was writing this book in total, because there's two parts that really stick out to me about the book of Hebrews. And as you look at the whole uh, book um, and you kind of think about the way that it's organized and what it talks about, you can kind of think about it in a number of different ways. Man, my uh, this is not working for me here. The whole book is written to Jews, right? And it is organized around this idea that the new covenant has come and we ought not to be falling back into the patterns of our past. And uh, the book lays out all the different ways that Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthoods and, and the practices and things that uh, the Jews came out of, they, they can't fall back into these habits. And it kind of is talking about faith over and over through the entire book. And one of the ways it, it kind of leads up to this great big crescendo, right? When you get to chapter 11 and it's talking about by faith, Enoch didn't even experience death. By faith, Moses passed through the Red Sea. By faith, they shut the mouths of lions. They quench the fury of the flames. And there's this great exhortation about, by faith, these things happened. And if the whole book leads up to that chapter 11 pinnacle of this passage, then we kind of get to chapter 13. And as we get to chapter 13, the writer's like, oh man, I got a bunch of stuff that I got to make sure that as they come to the conclusion of this letter, I got to make sure that they go out the door remembering these things. And so this morning, what I want to talk about, I want to talk about what faith is. And so I, I broke it up into four parts. There we go. Faith is how you treat people. Faith is what you value. Faith is forsaking your past. And lastly, faith is living the gospel. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this time and this opportunity to come together to look into this passage of Scripture uh, for all the things that you've taught us along the way through Hebrews. I pray that you would allow us to put aside the distractions of the week behind us and before us, that we might quiet our hearts, and that you would quiet my voice, and we might hear yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles or an app, I would encourage you to get at it in front of you. It's kind of a lengthy passage of Scripture, and I'm not going to be reading the whole thing. But I promise I'm not making this up as I go. It's really right out of the Scripture. Uh, so we're going to get right into it. It begins uh, with somewhat of a message of simplicity. And it talks in verses 1 through 3 that faith is how you treat people. Faith is how you treat people. 
and were admonished to show kindness to strangers and those in prison. That's the phrases that they use. They were admonished to show kindness and to those that are in prison, as if we were in prison ourselves. And the idea that he's trying to convey here is that we ought not to just show kindness to people who can kind of show that same kindness back. What they're really getting after is we should show kindness to people who have no way to repay that favor. You know, we live in somewhat of a culture where, you know, we can politic and, you know, we can get in with good people. If we, you know, kind of scratch your back, you scratch my back, I'll scratch there, that, that kind of idea. And as Christians, and in this passage, we're really encouraged not to just look for the people who, through helping them, they can help us back. But we ought to look to show kindness to people who have no way to repay us at all. And it kind of brings to mind that passage in Matthew 25, uh, where Jesus is talking about uh, the end times and the, the times of judgment, where they're going to be separated into two groups. And one of the ways that, um, that they're separated is that Jesus says that, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, this is an interesting idea. He's, he's telling us how important it is that even to the least of the people in our sphere of influence and in our lives, those are the people that we ought to make specific effort to reach out to. Now, in Avon, in our daily lives, perhaps we don't rub shoulders often with people in prison or homeless or, or people in maybe great senses of need. But I think we need to ask ourselves, who are the people in our lives who aren't the least in terms of importance, but maybe the least in terms of relational standing? And so as I was thinking about that, a few groups kind of come to mind. The, the customer service people that we interact with on a daily basis, you know, the clerks, the waiters, or the attendants, those people who their job is to serve, and when things don't start to go our way, often we feel a sense of entitlement, maybe to be rude or curt or to go above their head, those are the people in our circles of influence that we ought to be kind to. Maybe lower-ranking employees. You know, when you think about this, in every workplace, there's almost this uh, understood level of the totem pole, right? There's people at the top, and there's people at the bottom. And, you know, you think about maybe, like, the new guy in the office, or the intern, or uh, maybe the secretary. Those people who you feel like, well, it's their job to take the garbage from everyone else. It's almost, you know, I had to go through it, they have to go through it. It's just the way that's understood that it's the way that it's supposed to be. And so we can fall into a habit of, well, everyone else is treating the bottom of the totem pole in a certain way. It's okay for me to do the same. Students, those of you in the school setting, there's this very natural um, opportunity that you have to set an example and to lead those underclassmen. I can remember when I was in school and I was coming up through high school, I was very much focused on my own class and the things that I was doing. I really looked up to the students and those people that were in higher grades than I was, but I had no interaction with the people below me. And I think about back to that and I think about it with a certain measure of regret. And even now, um, when I meet someone that I went to school with, I kind of wonder... I probably didn't leave the best impression. I probably looked past or looked through some of the people that were younger with me just because I just didn't give them enough time or enough consideration. Students, I encourage you, think about those that may be looking up to you in your school setting. This last one's tough. As I was looking into this passage and I was considering who were the least 
of my circle of influence would be my children came to mind. And not because they're least in terms of importance or how much I interact with them, but there's no one that I feel more justified in being angry with than my own kids. Hurts to say it. But the reality is that when I become frustrated or things don't go my way, I feel like, well, it's, it's my position to put them in their place or my anger is justified or they need to feel the consequences of their actions. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. We're called to teach our kids with respect, with gentleness, the same way that God teaches and instructs us. Not to bully them or berate them or use our physical size or age to put them in their place. I think our kids can be the least in our everyday lives. Now, chapter 13 begins practically addressing the way that we treat people, but very quickly it zooms out to address the things that we value. Our actions always follow our values, and there's a few key ones that I want to highlight. Let's look back into the verses 4 through 7. Let marriage be held in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life to imitate their faith. And skipping to verse 17, it says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For what benefit would that be to you? Faith is what you value. And it begins with a conversation and a brief one, admonishment on marriage. Now, it talks here about sexual purity. And sexual purity within marriage um, has to be the very bottom, has to be the baseline uh, for what we, for the standards that we hold. And, and it's challenging right now because we live in a culture that's always pushing the boundaries, always questioning and forsaking traditional values. And, and what the scripture is saying here is that this is one area where there is no change. Sexual relational expression is reserved only for the marriage bed and that any any ideas or any practices that would remove that part from the confines of marriage is not anything that we are to be involved with. But this is just kind of the baseline. It it kind of moves very quickly into this idea that marriage ought to be honored by all. This means having a very high view of the institution itself and and taking specific actions to protect the marriages in our midst. You know, there's this very common thing that all of us can fall into, you know, complaining about your spouse or um, using uh, friendships to try and kind of get in between uh, someone's marriages. But as Christians, we ought to reject side-taking. When we hear someone complaining about their spouse, we ought to stop that kind of conversation in its, path, in its tracks. We ought to reject complaint-making. We ought to not go out of our ways to try to complain about the faults of our spouse, but we ought to look for ways that we could encourage them 
and raise them up, when we ought to reject any measure of spousal escaping. And what I mean by that is there can be this natural way that we're kind of looking to maybe put some distance in between us when there's fights or when there's disagreements or maybe there's something that we want to pursue and our spouse isn't as on board with that. And so we look for other ways to kind of have that relationship, maybe with someone else. And as Christians, in this passage, we ought to have a higher view of marriage than that. And we should orient ourselves around protecting marriages, not only our own, but the peoples around us. I'll never forget, I don't remember a lot of the messages that are preached at marriage ceremonies. I I don't know about you, but I've been to a bunch of them. I don't remember very many of them. But right before I got married, uh, Kelly and I went to a, 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 a marriage and uh, the, the, what the speaker uh, talked about there is one that I'll never forget. Now, when you go to a marriage ceremony, you get divided into two groups, right? Who, who are you with? You're either with the bride or you're with the groom. And so there's this natural tendency whenever you're around someone who's about to get married, you have probably a primary relationship with them. And what the speaker spoke about uh, at this marriage ceremony was he said that while all of us have that relationship primarily with one person, as soon as that couple says, I do, that part of your relationship is over. You can no longer favor one, the bride, or you can no longer favor the spouse, or or treat your relationship as more important than that new relationship. And, And no matter how that marriage comes to be, you know, I'm sure everyone here maybe has seen someone got married that maybe you had questions about the person that they had chosen or you didn't like some of the changes that you saw in their lives after they got married. And, and there was kind of this, well, you know, the person you used to be, I, I don't know if, the, if what's happening is right or, you know, you maybe still kind of make some complaints or questions whether or not it was the right commitment to make. I remember this sermon was saying, that ends today. If you're here and you know this bride, or if you're here and you know this groom, now you have a relationship with both of them. And any effort or any investment into the relationship is to push them closer and closer together. We put all of our past behind us. Now, I'd be remiss uh, in this total subject as we talk about marriage. I have a brief exhortation that I'd like to give to teens and parents of teens. So let me have your attention if you're in those groups. Physical intimacy is tied to lifelong emotional and mental connection in a way that the youth often don't understand. When it comes to physical connection in a relationship, there is no reverse, and parents are called to set boundaries, to be involved, to set guidelines, to protect our youth from themselves. Parents, Do not cede the wheel to culture. Do not cede your place to anyone else when it comes to these matters. And kids, your bodies deceive you into thinking that you want something you don't yet understand. This passage encourages you to submit to the authority of your parents. It's called the marriage bed for a reason. There is sexual expression that's meant only for the confines of marriage. Verse 5 quickly pivots uh, to the topic of contentment, which is a difficult thing for us because we live in an economy, in a culture of upgrade, of new, 
of change. We're always bombarded with messages of what's coming next and what's replacing the things that you have. And we have to war and battle to be content for the things that we have. I I know in my own life, and as I think about as I've aged and grown and as our family has changed, you know, I think back to when I first got married and Kelly and I lived in a two-bedroom apartment and I wasn't thinking about any house projects. I didn't have to mow the lawn or plow the driveway. And with added responsibilities, I find myself more and more building my own kingdom, looking to grow it and expand it. I think there's a message here about simplicity and contentment. Now, I'm not saying that things are bad or that you know you shouldn't have a nice house or things like that. But I think we ought to have in the back of our minds this idea that we need to be content with the things that we have. And asking ourselves, do I have my sights too often set on what's next? Am I always looking for the new? Am I always looking for the bigger, for the better? If you find yourself in that habit of always wanting to replace, always wanting to upgrade, I think you should question that mindset. Lastly, in verse 7, and this is a difficult one to say. I'm an elder here. It's going to come across maybe as a little bit self-serving. But the verses are clear. It talks about the submission to your elders. Now, we're all for leaders who are our cheerleaders, right? We're all for those people in our lives who are all about pushing you to reach your full potential, or we're all, we have no problems with those people who are you know, aligning with exactly everything that we want to pursue. But the challenge comes in maybe when they call out some of your actions, when they pull you aside and said, hey, I'm not sure that was the right way to talk to that person. Or, you know, as you're, I overheard you talking this way to your kids, and I'm not sure that was the right way. Those leaders who are willing to step into your lives and question the things that are happening, these verses are telling us that you need to be willing to submit to that. Now, if you cannot find a church or handle a pastor or elder questioning or correcting your actions, These verses are saying your values are misaligned. I'm not saying that it has to be here, but you, I think in the back of our minds, we need to have this openness that tells us, okay, if this person comes to me, if my elder comes to me, if my church leader comes to me and they have something to say, that is not an excuse to leave fellowship. This is not an excuse to find someone who won't question your actions or agree with those actions. This is when we're called to submit to leadership. Now, the gospel in these verses inform our present. They inform where we are in our lives today, but only to the extent that we hold on to it. And a lot of this book, the book of Hebrews, is oriented around this idea, is that we need to continue in the new gospel and put aside our path. If we fail and we fall back into old habits or ways of thinking we drift from God's plan. We need to forsake our pasts. Now, as I approach speaking, I always look for different ways to illustrate things. And I was looking for an example of forsaking your path, and I was looking around online. The only one that came up was that scene from The Lion King where Timon and Pumbaa are telling Simba he needs to put the past behind him. didn't exactly feel right for this. Um, but So what I, what I did want to do is I thought it would be an interesting way to use something futuristic to talk about our past. Are you guys familiar with ChatGPT? It's an artificial intelligence text-based uh, platform. And so you can ask it to... 
um, do things for you. And so what I'm going to do here today, and I've done this a number of times, but each time I have, it gives me a different uh, outcome. I've typed into ChatGPT. It's a free app. Anyone could do this. And I didn't do this for the whole sermon, by the way, in case you thought I was cheating. (laughs) It says, give me a two-minute inspirational speech about breaking free from old habits using a biblical illustration. I wish I could put this up on the screen, but this is is real, guys. We're going to see how this goes. I hit send, and it starts typing. So here we go. I'd like to show you what ChatGPT has to say about forsaking your path. In life, oh, sorry. In life, we often find ourselves bound by old habits that hold us back from reaching our full potential. These habits can come in various forms and be negative thoughts, self doubt, or destructive behaviors. Today, I want to inspire you to break free from those chains using a biblical illustration that carries a timeless message. Of liberation. Imagine the story of the Israelites enslaved in Egypt for generations. They were trapped in the bondage of their circumstances, yearning for the freedom of a brighter future. Moses, chosen by God, emerged as their leader, guiding them towards liberation. Just like the Israelites, we too can find ourselves enslaved by the patterns and routines that hinder our growth. These habits become our personal Egypt, limiting our potential and preventing us from experiencing the abundant life we were meant to live. But here's the remarkable part of the story. God provided a way for the Israelites to break free. Through his divine intervention, he led them through the Red Sea, parting the waters to create a path where there seemed to be none. They took a leap of faith, stepping into the unknown and to trust, and their trust was rewarded with deliverance. Likewise, breaking free from old habits requires courage and faith. It demands a willingness to confront the unknown, to venture into the uncharted territory, and to trust that there is something greater awaiting us on the other side. Remember, just as God made a way for the Israelites, he will make a way for us too. And it begins with a deep desire for change and commitment to transform our lives. Embrace the power within you and break the chains of your old habits. Embrace a future filled with possibilities. Let go of self-limiting beliefs and negative patterns that hold you back and replace them with positive affirmations, healthy habits, and a mindset rooted in faith and resilience. Surround yourself with supportive individuals who will uplift and encourage you along the way. Today, I urge you to seize the opportunity to break free from the old habits that bind you. Embrace the journey towards personal liberation just as the Israelites embraced their journey towards the promised land. Have faith in your ability to transform and trust that God's guiding hand will lead you to the life of abundance and and purpose that you were meant to live. Remember, finally, change is possible and the time for liberation is now. Kind of wild, right? Just from typing something in. Now, for the reader of Hebrews, they were admonished not to fall back into their old patterns of relying on ritual observance. 
their, their, the sin that they often fell into was this idea of that if I kind of do the things to earn my salvation, uh, that will give me a sense of superiority um, over those around me, or, or that I, I can earn my salvation, or kind of this idea that through practicing of the Jewish law, uh, that they could somehow uh, be in right standing with God. Now, personally, maybe this is different for some of you, I don't often fall into the pattern of offering too many slaughtered animals on my burn barrel. Now, maybe some of you just get gung-ho about killing that fattened calf, and this uh, verses really do apply to you, but I don't think that most of us fall into that habit. I think our mechanisms today are a little more discreet. I think we have modernized a little bit. And while our methods may be modern, our sin is the same. Maybe we take on some service roles at church or at home that we shouldn't. You know, we're always volunteering to do something because we feel like we could perform our way into earning our standing. Maybe we convince ourselves that our Sunday morning attendance is the only time that we need to carve out for ministry, that we set aside opportunities to serve our community or serve at school or or be with our family because, well, I went to church on Sunday. I, I don't need to do anything more. Maybe we put off witnessing to our coworkers because we don't want to offend them with our beliefs and it's really not the right context or the right place to bring my Christianity into the workplace. I mean, after all, they know we're Christians. If they had questions, they'd ask, right? Or maybe, just maybe, we've elevated that most dearly held political view or social issue or matter of conscience conscience, to give us the rationale that we need to be rude or dismissive or even cruel. After all, Jesus would never vote for a Democrat. He would never get a vaccine He would never befriend a homosexual. Jesse said with great sarcasm. Let's be mindful of our old habits. Let's be mindful of the things that we fell into before we were brought to the truth of the gospel. The faith that we're called into is one of living out the gospel in our daily lives. And to see how this is done, we only need to look at Jesus. Continuing to verse 12 through 14. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Verse 12 tells us that we ought to live out our gospel, in our context. Now, as I was getting ready uh, to speak, uh, I listened to a sermon by John Piper. And if you're not familiar with him, he has this very dramatic and repetitive way of preaching. And he had 50 minutes on these three verses. And as he did so, it was a, it was a fantastic sermon. But he, he did so, he, he kind of circles around a point, and then he comes back to it. And the, the term that he used over and over was that Jesus moved towards the need, not comfort. 
that if you look at Jesus' life, the movement, his mission, all the things that he did, that you could characterize it this way, that he moved towards need and not comfort. And as we think about what Jesus did, I think, I think this is really true, right? He went out of the comfort of heaven and into the need of the earth. He went out of the comfort of his friends, his disciples, into the needs of his very enemies. And finally, he went out of the comfort of safety into the need of the violence of the cross. If we are called to be Christ-like, we are called to the need in our lives. As Americans, we view discomfort as something to be fixed, something to be temporarily tolerated and then avoided. As Christians, we ought to seek need out, learn its name, introduce it to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews asks us this morning, where or maybe who is the need in your life? Now, faith is in its repetition. All of these things that we've talked about this morning, as you're a young Christian or you're new, they can seem like a new way to do things. They can be easy to try and reach out when it's your very first time or when an idea is new, you get excited about it. But faith gets harder through the passage of years and through the passage of time. God ends Hebrews this morning with the exhortation on faith because faith is not a box to be checked or a moment to happen. And as time goes on, it can be harder and harder to practice. But true faith is in its faithfulness. It's a practice over time. It's an expression on repeat. And no matter how many times we have been so before, we are called to be Christ-like today. Jesus died not for only for our once and for all justification, but also for our today and tomorrow sanctification. As we think back to chapter 11, when it talks about all the heroes of our faith, when it goes through and it lists all the things that they had done, and it talks about Abraham and Moses and Enoch and all these people, it ends that discussion somewhat in a very particular way. In verse 13, it reads, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. God desires the process of his people day in and day out, choosing to set aside their sinful natures and pursue and serve him on the narrow path. 2,000 years ago, the Jews needed to be reminded that the gospel that they fell in love with called them out of their old lives and old ways of relating to God. This morning, you and I are no different. We want to earn and deserve the salvation that God gives as a free gift. And in the process, we reject the one that he sent to deliver that gift. Let's close with this. And as we hear the word of God this morning... In verse 15, let us hear and be moved. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do good or to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, this opportunity to gather together. We thank you for the reminder that we ought to live lives of faith, where the things that matter are the way that we treat people, the things that we value. 
and that we're daily choosing to set aside our pasts and pursue you with our whole hearts. I pray this morning that you would bring to mind the areas where we can serve, the people that we can meet their needs, and that we ought not to do so selfishly, but that we ought to do so with the heart of Christ, looking to serve those people who would not be able to repay us back. I thank you for each one here. I pray that as they leave, that they would uh, be mindful of the things that we've looked at and consider how they might respond to your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.